Hey guys, Ray Russell back again uh, along by my side, Steve Ekstat. Steve, welcome to another edition of WCNN. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a rough uh, final stretch of 2020, for especially for the ranks of professional wrestling. Obviously, recently we lost Tracy Smothers. Some others have since passed away, one of those being Pat Patterson. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I hate to say this, but it seems like they're just piling up here. It doesn't. It hasn't stopped most of the year. Twenty twenty has already sucked for everything that's gone on. But for wrestling fans, you, you're losing a lot of legends this year, and Pat's right up there with the top of the list as one of the biggest. These shows never get easy to talk about or or to do. So, no, definitely, it's unfortunate we're here. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a, a big name and a, a big loss to the history of the business. And I'm gonna get right down to it here and. Talk a little bit about Pat and Steve. We'll get your thoughts on the other side. Born Pierre Claremont, or Pierre Claremont, in 1941, Pat Patterson soon became a professional wrestler at the young age of 17. Debuted in the Montreal area and competed there for three years before moving on to the United States for the Tony Santos-promoted Boston Wrestling Territory. It was during this run in Boston that Pat would meet his longtime life partner, Louis Dundero. Pat had come to the States without any knowledge of the English language, but picked it up quickly and eventually was talking people into the buildings. While in Montreal, the young Patterson made an impression on the legendary Mad Dog Vachon who took it upon himself to get Pat booked in the Portland Territory for Don Owen. Story goes Mad Dog contacted Pat in Boston and told him his start date in Portland, but promoter Tony Santos talked Pat into staying in Boston. Furious of the news that Pat had no-showed Portland, Mad Dog contacted Patterson once more and essentially told him he had embarrassed and angered the Mad Dog and that the Mad Dog would rough Pat up the next time he saw him. Fearing for his life, Patterson packed up and was off to Portland Territory in no time. Once it was discovered that Pat Patterson was gay, the promoters in Portland came up with the gimmick of Pretty Boy Pat Patterson, donning lipstick and sunglasses and a beret and even a cigarette holder, uh, essentially to play off of all of the homosexual stereotypes of the time. While with Portland, for the better part, off and on of five years, Pat was also loaned out to the Western States area, Arizona, Oklahoma, and Texas. It was in 1964 that he really began to take off as himself. Pat won the Pacific Northwest Tag Team titles on two occasions and finally captured the Pacific Northwest Heavyweight Championship from West Coast legend Pepper Martin in October of 64, holding the belt for six weeks before dropping it back. In January 65, Patterson was brought in by promoter Roy Shire to the San Francisco Territory to team with top singles star Ray the Crippler Stevens. It was at this point that Pat was asked to dye his hair blonde to match the Crippler, and the Blonde Bombers were born. Considered by pretty much everyone to be the greatest tag team of their era in the 60s and 70s, and arguably one of, if not maybe the, greatest tag team of all time. Stevens and Patterson would become famous for working many uncommon styles of the time that are widely popular today. The insane bumping style of both, the high-flying style of the time, coupled with the use of non-stop high spots, finishers, and false finishes. The Bombers were unlike any team before them. Their run as tag team champions lasted nearly two years, from 1965 to 1967. It was reported that the promoter, Roy Shire, disliked the homosexual community, but never thought twice about it when Patterson was in the ring. 
While primarily competing in San Francisco, Pat also began touring Japan and even captured the Western States title in the Funk's Amarillo promotion as Lord Patrick Patterson in 1968. But all good things must come to an end, at least temporarily, and when Ray Stevens made a turn to babyface, a feud between the Bombers was imminent. The blood feud between the former partners culminated with Stevens defeating the heel Patterson in a Texas death match. During the early 70s, Patterson would begin using a mask as a gimmick with the idea of loading the mask to score wins by using a headbutt. And in 1971, Pat found a new partner. Albeit brief, he was once again on top as tag team champions with superstar Billy Graham. By 1972, it took the evil manager Dr. Ken Ramey and his charge of Lars Anderson to turn Pat Patterson babyface and eventually win the tag team titles with Rocky Johnson on three occasions between 1972 and 1973. Patterson would continue to find tag team success, winning the San Francisco version of the world tag team titles with the likes of High Chief Peter Maivia, Moondog Maine, Pedro Morales, Pepper Gomez, and even Tony Gurria between the years of 1974 and 1977. In between all of his tag title runs, Patterson also held the top belt in San Francisco, the United States heavyweight title belt, six times between 1968 and 1977 as well. Patterson was also the winner of the famous annual Cow Palace Battle Royal, having won twice, first in 1975 and then the final Battle Royal in 1981, only to be outdone by former partner Ray Stevens, who won the event three times. By 1977, Patterson had outlasted the normal time period a wrestler could typically stay on top in a single promotion. Having worked in San Francisco for the better part of 12 years, Patterson moved on to Eddie Graham's championship wrestling from Florida, where he won the Florida TV title and partnered with Ivan Koloff to capture the Florida Tag Team Championship for a summer run before losing them to two of Pat's old partners, Rocky Johnson and Pedro Morales, early that fall. While he likely had a lot of say and input in his lengthy time in San Francisco, Pat was even given the opportunity to book with Eddie Graham while in Florida, proving early on that Pat was worthy of his future job with the WWF. Not just anyone was given the book under the guidance of Eddie Graham. Patterson moved on from Florida by 1978 and popped up for Vern Gagne's AWA, reforming the Blonde Bombers with Ray Stevens and capturing the AWA tag team titles in September of that year, holding them for nine months before dropping them to Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vachon in June of 1979. It was during that time that Patterson also began appearing for Vincent J. McMahon's WWF promotion in April of 79 for the TV tapings. This was done to get him prepared for a full-time run with the company later that year. And after finishing up in the AWA, Patterson immediately defeated Ted DiBiase for the WWF North American Heavyweight Championship on the June 23rd edition of WWF Championship Wrestling. Now managed by the Grand Wizard, Pat continued to defend the North American title until denouncing it on October 25th, 79, and winning the Intercontinental title in a fictitious tournament in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Pat was now the first ever WWF Intercontinental Champion. Holding titles wasn't Pat's only claim to fame upon arriving in the WWF. After arriving full-time only a couple weeks earlier, by July, Patterson went on and immediately began a record-setting four-month program in Madison Square Garden 
with WWF champion Bob Backlund. Never before or since has anyone challenged for the world title on four successive MSG events. The feud culminated with Backlund finally defeating Intercontinental Champion Patterson in a steel cage match in September of 79. And during the December 8th episode of Championship Wrestling, Pat learned that the Grand Wizard had sold his contract to Captain Lou Albano. But the IC champion Patterson rejected the idea, having never been a fan of the human being Albano. During that same show, Patterson would turn face when during a six-man tag team match where he was forced to team with Albano's Wild Samoans, Pat got into it with Albano and split him wide open with a chair shot to the head. Patterson was instantly a babyface, often defeating his former manager Albano in 1980 on the house show loop. After an eight-month reign with the Intercontinental title, Patterson would go on to lose the belt to Kim Batera, who was now being managed by Pat's old manager, the Grand Wizard. Pat would make a run against Kim Batera to regain the title, but it wasn't in the cards. During that summer, Patterson would also participate in the famous showdown at Shea Stadium, defeating Torquemada by disqualification. It was also Patterson who served as the warm-up babyface for the newly heel Larry Zabisco in preparation for getting Zabisco ready for the big cage match with Bruno at Shea Stadium. Larry worked Patterson all across the house show loop. By the fall, Patterson took over co-announcing duties with Vince McMahon on the All-Star Wrestling Program. And eventually, once Bruno left, Pat would also take over the championship wrestling program as well. But by December, he was right back into the thick of things beginning a feud with top heel Sergeant Slaughter. Patterson, feeling that the Sarge's $5,000 Cobra Clutch Challenge wasn't fair, was then offered a chance at winning the prize himself. When Pat declined, Slaughter's manager, the Wizard, doubled the money, offering Patterson ten grand if he could break the hold. Early in 1981, Patterson once again turned down the challenge, though left the opportunity open by stating he would do it when he felt ready. For several weeks, Slaughter continued to try and goad Pat into the challenge, with Patterson often ignoring the Sarge. That is, until an episode in March, when Slaughter called Pat Patterson a coward and slapped him across the face, finally causing Pat to accept the Cobra Clutch challenge right then and there. It all wound up being a setup as Pat was attacked, pummeled, beaten bloody with a chair, and then placed in the Cobra Clutch to add further insult. Pat popped up at the March Madison Square Garden show to issue a challenge to Slaughter for a match in April that led to a double disqualification. That match set up the now famous match, a match that was dubbed Match of the Year, the Alley Street Fight between Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter in May of 81 at Madison Square Garden. Patterson wound up beating Slaughter to a bloody pulp before even the Grand Wizard couldn't stomach it any further and was forced to throw in the towel for the Sarge. For the next several months, Patterson drifted into semi-retirement, still competing in some house shows, but more sporadic. But by October, it was time to call upon Pat once again. This time, the hated Angelo King Kong Mosca had arrived. Mosca had just lost a match to perennial jobber, Victor Mercado, on a disqualification for abusing the poor job guy throughout the match. Post-match, Pat Patterson interviewed referee Dick Worley, congratulating him for disqualifying Mosca for his behavior. This didn't sit well with Angelo, who grabbed a metal water pitcher nearby at ringside and clocked Patterson over the back of the head with it, leaving him laying, setting up matches between the two for the remainder of 1981. 
Patterson's time in the ring became less and less as he would compete sporadically throughout 1982 to 1984, while continuing as an announcer and other duties with the WWF. Pat's last memorable match with the company came at the hands of Kamala. Realizing it was time to move on from the ring, Patterson did a quick four-minute job at Madison Square Garden to Kamala in an attempt to aid the Ugandan giant in looking like an unstoppable monster during his feud with Andre the Giant. As Pat completely transitioned away from the ring, he was a jack-of-all-trades for the WWF moving forward. An announcer when needed, Patterson was best known as a top assistant booker and finish man for Vince McMahon after the firing of George Scott. Pat continued with this label throughout the remainder of the 80s and 1990s, most notably being credited as the inventor of the Royal Rumble match concept. The list of Pat's true contributions to the business could never begin to be counted. What storylines did he create or help with? What gimmicks were his idea? What matches did he put together? What finishes in the ring were laid out by the legendary Hall of Famer? We'll truly never know. Pat is credited as the man who put together the tricky Hogan Warrior match at WrestleMania VI, the guy who pushed for Vince to move away from the jacked-up athletes as world champion in favor of his favorites, Bret the Hitman Hart and Shawn Michaels. You could say he sparked an entire new direction for the company in 1992. He was even the one who introduced the future rock, Dwayne Johnson, to Vince McMahon. His contributions are endless. Attitude-era fans were even treated to Patterson's comedic side as a member of Vince McMahon's Stooges, along with Gerald Briscoe, as they ran foil to Stone Cold Steve Austin and feuded at times with the Mean Street Posse. A former hardcore and more recently 24-7 champion just last year, Patterson's career transcended several generations of fans for some 60 years. And as seen in later years, an avid karaoke fan, Patterson loved the song My Way by Frank Sinatra. And many often agree, Pat did do things his way. And with that, he left an incomparable stamp on the history of professional wrestling. No matter how you remember him, as a top star selling out the Cow Palace time after time, the first intercontinental champion in the WWF, a tremendous mind during the heyday of the World Wrestling Federation, or even the fun-loving stooge of Vince McMahon. You better believe Pat did it all his way. Steve, if you have anything you would like to say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about how much he actually did. I know a lot of people just know Pat as the stooge and the, the comedy bits that we get during the Attitude Era and things like that. Obviously, they've done a pretty solid job of letting you know the history of like the importance of Pat Patterson. I mean, that information is out there. Uh, as far as WWE is concerned, it's getting it out there. They 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 talked about it at nauseum sometimes about him and his importance to the business. But my biggest takeaway is the, the unfortunate circumstances of his footage and his career, like Ray Stevens and those guys. There's not a lot of it out there, at least during the heyday of their run out in San Francisco and, and things like that. So. I just wish I could see more. You know, I've seen the boot camp match. I've seen some of his other matches and things like that. And um, he's he's a hell of a performer. I know there's one on the Hidden Gems with him and Macho Man's dad. And it's 
Yeah, it's a lot of headlocks, but once they get out of those headlocks and rest holds, they get into spots and he's flying all over the place and uh, Pafo's flying all over the place. And it's just, a, it's a completely different style than what you're used to, but you can see the, the influence that he had on um, guys going forward, and, you know, just on the business and how his style has been adapted and modified and done over the years. And he's just... He's so entertaining in the ring, and I wish there's more available of him uh, to see because uh, his heyday is pretty much almost wiped out, it seems like. if I, I could be mistaken there, but um, I know there's just not a lot of them out there. But uh, he's – and then outside the ring, like you mentioned in the in the obituary thing there, we, his contributions are endless. We have no idea, like, what he had his finger on, what he did, what whose matches he called things like that like we, we just have no clue it's probably i would love to know if wwe did like a record book of not maybe not every single match but you know most of the matches that were on pay-per-view tv who did what who called it who who booked the finish and things like that because that'd be one hell of a thing to you know release and let people see and have and you can kind of see whose fingerprint is on some of the biggest matches in history um and with the Royal Rumble coming up next month, you know, that's his baby. He kind of came up with that. And I think it's just a play off the San Francisco Battle Royals that he won and, and things like that. So his career, it's like it's hard to sum it up. And if, you know, a 20, 30-minute podcast because it's he's left an indelible mark on the wrestling business. And as far as overall, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, <laughs> if somebody's done more for the business inside and outside the ring. I mean, I'm sure you can come up with some names, but it seems like for the longevity that he had and everything that he did after he was done wrestling, mm-hmm. um, it is, it's, it's an unfathomable to think about like everything that he could have possibly had his fingers on. And, uh, just a tremendous, I don't know, man, <laughs> very, very few people deserve the name legend bestowed upon them. There's a lot of people that say these guys are legends, but Pat Patterson is a legend for everything that he's done. And hopefully he's uh, resting easy and um, thoughts and prayers are with his family and uh, his loved ones. And, you know, my memories of Pat really came from video more than anything. He was all but pretty much retired uh, by the time I started watching wrestling in the early to mid eighties. So, my first real looks at Pat in that prime era when he was on top were Coliseum videos. And later on during the very, very early stages of tape trading, I got San Francisco film footage, AWA episodes with Pat on them. And I got to see a little more and learn a little more throughout the 1990s. I, my first real look at Patterson was probably like the history of the intercontinental title tape, the Coliseum videotape, and then some other matches as well. And then eventually I saw the alley street fight with Slaughter, and I was a believer, man. I know he's past his prime, and he wasn't taking all the crazy bumps anymore, but he certainly knew how to work the crowd and work a match. And I was just really in awe of that of that match uh, with Slaughter as well. And, of course, uh, eventually finding out he was the inventor of the Royal Rumble. Vince really wanted nothing to do with it, and Pat pitched it to him, and Vince said, you know what, you go ahead and do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bomb, but you go ahead and do that, and uh, look what it became. Uh, what a creative mind, what a what a great mind than everything he gave to the business. We all have him to thank for that and the countless other things he had his hands in during the 80s and 90s especially. And now 
the end is near. And all puns aside, thank you, Pat Patterson, for everything you did in making the wrestling business what it was during all those years that you gave to the fans and then gave back to the business after you retired from the ring. Hopefully somewhere up there in heaven, Pat's part of one of those big wrestling shows in the sky. Another sellout with the fans going banana. This one's for you, Pat. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not.